0: So glad that you joined us on this hot summer July day as we are wrapping up the series Ancient Faith in a Modern World. And I don't know about you, but I have really been enjoying this series personally, and I know many others have told me the same thing. Because what we're discussing, in case you're just kind of tuning in right here, is that we are talking about how the ancient faith, which we have been given here in the Orthodox Church... The ancient faith, which is the church that Jesus himself started 2,000 years ago back in Jerusalem. We believe that Jesus started a real church. Jesus didn't just start like a philosophy, but a real church. And he had real disciples in those church. In that church. And those real disciples had disciples who had disciples who had disciples. And that church has lived on since the beginning for the past 2,000 years. We We believe that church is still alive today. And what we've been talking about in this series, about how that ancient faith, that church that Jesus started is exactly what this modern world needs. And what we've been seeing is how so often we kind of think of that church is that ancient faith, and we live in a modern world. So we need a modern faith for a modern world. And what we've been seeing is that actually the exact opposite is true. And we've been seeing, hopefully you've been seeing, is that the ancient faith is exactly what the modern world needs. And we've been looking at that week by week in terms of what we believe, our faith and tradition, we talked about worship, we talked about our view towards those who have departed and gone uh, ahead of us, okay, and left this life. And We saw how the ancient faith really speaks to who we are and hits us in a place that we didn't even know existed. A question for Orthodox Christians here in America and many other places in the world, depending on, on whether or not you live in a country where majority of people are Orthodox or not, we're going to talk about a question that troubles many of us. The question that we get, question that we hear, and we don't really know how to answer. And not knowing how to answer this question is really a modern phenomenon, because what we're going to see today, the question that we're going to talk about, the topic we're going to discuss, was actually a quite a simple topic for the first several hundred, I want to say thousand, years of Christianity. It was a simple question that believers knew how to answer, But it's just this, this is where you see again that that discrepancy between the ancient faith and the modern world. The modern world has corrupted our way of viewing this subject, and that's why we Orthodox Christians, we struggle with this question. And that question is this, are you saved? We hear that question if you're Orthodox, you hear that question, you don't know what to say. Because if you say no, or let's start if you say yes, You think the answer is yes, but you're not sure if that's the right thing to say because you never really heard that before. So you're worried if you say yes, then you're signing yourself up to something you don't really believe in. So you say, no, we don't believe in that. And then you're painted as a pagan who doesn't believe in salvation or doesn't believe in Jesus or whatever it may be. So we don't really know what to say. Are you saved? Are you not saved? When were you saved? Was it at this retreat? How were you saved? And we, as Orthodox Christians, we struggle with how to answer this question. What we're going to see here today is that it's actually a very simple question. And for several hundreds of years, like I said, Orthodox Christians understood this in a very simple way, but it's only these days that we have been confused by the modern world around us. Now, before I answer this question, what we're going to try to see, we're going to answer this throughout today. You don't want my answer, right? You don't need my answer. I don't need your answer. My answer and your answer is of little value. What we need is the ancient faith's answer. So if I were to go back to St. Peter and say, hey, Peter, are you saved? What would he say? If I were to go to St. Paul, are you saved? What would he say? What would Peter's disciple say? What would Peter's disciple disciple say? Like how would our ancient faith throughout all these hundreds of years have answered this question? Agree with me, that's the right thing we need to be seeking, right? Not what I think, not what you think, not what your friend thinks, not what his friend thinks. What the ancient faith has always thought about this. Well, there's a problem right off the bat. The problem is, that in order to answer this question from an ancient faith perspective, we need to have an ancient faith worldview. Because if your worldview today isn't the same as the person who you're trying to get their answer, then the answers can't line up. Let me explain what that means because that might be kind of confusing. If I were to say, these people over here, okay, okay, Mark right there. My friend Mark. Mark is a bad man. If I say Mark is a bad man, several of you said, ah, oh. And you understood that to mean certain something. But if I were to go back, I was just watching a documentary the other day on the 80s. Okay, the last great decade is what it was called, the 80s, okay? And if you were to go back to the 80s, and I were to say, Mark is a bad man, then you would hear the same words, but have a different meaning. Would you agree with that? that the word bad can be used by different people in a different way. So the word bad today, let's forget about today because we don't know everything means everything today. The word bad from 1950 is different than the word bad from 1980. Would you agree with that? Like that's a simple one, right? And that's only 30 year difference. So what if some of the words that we read in the Bible don't mean the same thing that they used to mean back then? So we need to have the right context because I say Mark is a bad man, and if you don't understand my worldview, my context, you misinterpret me. And let's be honest, like I'm not saying this about, I'm saying, let's be honest, the word bad changes. The word man has a different meaning today than it did 100 years ago. And 100 years from now may have a different meaning altogether. So I'm saying there's no word that in and of itself is forever meaning the same thing. Does that make sense to everybody? So if I go back to the apostles, and the apostles say very simply, believe and be saved. Believe and be saved. So therefore, the solution is right there. Salvation, believe and be saved. But what if their belief doesn't mean the same as my belief? Like I need to ask myself, not what does believe mean to me, but what does believe mean to them? And what if saved has a completely different meaning in my mind than it did for them? What if they understood saved as something completely different than me? If I am trying to use my worldview to analyze and judge their words, I will be building my faith on a faulty foundation. Everyone with me so far? So what we're going to do here today is I'm not going to answer questions as much as I want to ask questions. I discovered that whenever you're trying to dis- trying to dig deep into something, the people who start with answers, surface level, this verse says this, those are the people who usually aren't going to get very far. I discover you're much better off asking questions. So, we're gonna ask questions. We're gonna ask questions like, What is salvation? We're gonna go back to fourth grade. Who, what, where, when, why? That's what we're gonna do. Who, what, where? We're gonna ask four of those, okay? We're gonna ask, Well, not who, okay? Because who is Jesus, okay? But what is salvation? When does it happen? How does it happen? Where does it happen? We're gonna ask these kinds of questions. Because what I learned, like I said, you're always better off asking questions to make sure you know the meaning before you start to dig in. I told you all this story before. I'll never forget this. This is why I always ask, What do you mean when you say that? One time I was in an airport. And I was in an airport, and I'm ready to get on the plane, and I'm, and I'm just minding my own business, you know, doing whatever, and I got my backpack, and a girl comes up to me and says, you're a priest? I said, yes, I'm a priest. She says, I got a question for you about God. I said, fire away. That's my job. She said, should I obey God even if it's really difficult? Should I obey God and do what God wants me to do even if it's very difficult? You would answer and say, say, of course. It's a logical answer. God gave me grace. I didn't say yes. I said, what are you talking about? Can we talk more about this? And I dug further in. And I said, what are you talking about particular? Well, as the story goes, okay, long story short, she basically is sleeping with a married man, and she believes God is telling her to kill his wife. And this is very difficult to do, and y'all are laughing and joking because it's a funny story now. She was getting on a plane, planning on arriving in the city where she was going, and she felt God wanted her to kill that man's wife. So let me ask you again, should I obey God even if it's hard to do? You never answer questions in airports. Okay, that's what I discovered. Okay? You never answer questions in airports. You say, what do you mean? Someone says, are you saved? I say, what do you mean by salvation? When were you saved? I say, what do you mean by salvation? How do you understand salvation? Let's have a discussion, not a soundbite. So with that, as our introduction, let's jump into who, what, where, when, why of salvation. Let's start with what. What is salvation? There are two views on salvation. The modern world view, I'm going to start with the modern world view, and then we'll jump into the ancient faith view. The modern world is that the majority of people, when they say, are you saved, are talking about what I call a ticket, a ticket to heaven, a ticket to get out of hell free. What majority of people in our modern world mean when they say, are you saved, it means that you, at some point in time, accepted Christ, and and we can define that later, okay? But you said a prayer, you believed something, you accepted something, you had a a mental acknowledgement of something about yourself and something about Jesus, like you did something, and from that moment in time, you received salvation. And it's like a ticket. And once you have this ticket, and then you show up at the end of the days, okay, when you die and there's the movie theater with St. Peter, or there's heaven, like a movie theater with St. Peter at the door, you give them the ticket and you're in. Because you say, well, where'd you get this from? You say, when I was, you know, this age, I said this, I did this, and no one could take that ticket away from me. And then if you go to someone and say, what if someone says the prayer and believes and does the thing and then later falls away from the faith? Then it's a catch-22, and then they'll say, well, they didn't really get the ticket then. They didn't really believe. So it's a it's a foolproof way, Okay. Is that what salvation means? Is that what salvation is? A ticket to get out of hell free? A non-refundable? Like once I get it, you can't take it from me? Is it a, 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 a stamp on my head that a tattoo that says once I receive this, once I've done this, then no one can ever, I can never lose, okay, the kingdom of heaven? Well, let's go now and look what the ancient faith would say about that. First, the word salvation, the word salvation, implies you are in a state that is unnatural to you. If I say so-and-so was saved, the implication there is that so-and-so was in a state that is foreign to the state they should be in. So, um, I'm drowning. Save me. Because I'm not supposed to be in the water. I'm supposed to be on the land. Um, I'm under attack. Okay, save me it means get rid of the bad guys out of my land. I, um, save me means that I'm in a place right now. I have a disease or a sickness. Save me it means that I have something that is unnatural and foreign to who I am and who I was created to be. So let's go. If man needs salvation, that means that man who needs saving is in a state unnatural to himself. What is that state of unnatural that man is in? Well, let's go back to what's the natural state. When you go back to the very, very, very beginning, man was created in a certain way. And that way is best summarized by the prayers that we say in the divine liturgy. At the very, very beginning, we tell the story of salvation every time we celebrate the liturgy of the Eucharist. And then the story of salvation begins with these words. "O oh God, the great and the eternal, who formed man in, in corruption. There's our key word right now. You cannot understand salvation without understanding this word incorruption. Because when God created man, man was in a state of incorruption. Means what? Means there was no sicknesses. Means there was no aging. It means there was no um, uh, illnesses. It means there was no anger. It means there was no greed. It means that everything was good. And everything was very good on this planet. There was no mental disorders. There was no uh, depression. There was no fighting. There was only incorruption And what I would say, man at that time was whole. Man was whole. Man was healthy. And the sign of man's health, you could see man's health manifest in his relationship and fellowship and intimacy with God. Man was created in incorruption. And when man was in corrupt state, man and God, there was nothing between them. Perfect communion, they spoke to one another, they talked to one another, like God would stroll and he would chat with Adam. Man and God were one when man was in the state of incorruption. But you know how the story goes, that state doesn't last long enough. Devil comes in, eat this fruit, Eve gives it to Adam, to eat the fruit, and the minute they ate that fruit, everything went haywire in this world. All of a sudden, you had a world that was perfect before incorruption, now you have fighting. Him accusing her and her accusing him, and them accusing the devil and them accusing God. You have their children, one kill the other. Okay, you have greed enter the world. You have envy. You have lust. You have anger. You have all these different things enter into this world, including nature itself becomes corrupt. Now all of a sudden we age. Now all of a sudden we get sick. Now all of a sudden we have mental disorders. Now all of a sudden there's earthquakes. There's tsunamis. There's all kinds of bad stuff. And you look around the world and you see all the fruit of all that bad stuff right now. Why did all that bad stuff happen? Well... I told you when man was in corruption, that incorruption was manifest by fellowship with God. Look what happens after man's sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. When man was in corruption, man and God won. And then all of a sudden, man had to leave. And man was far away from God. And that's where all the corruption came from. Because over there, when man was out there, God is here, man is there. Out there, there's murder. There's anger. There's hatred. There's lust. There's greed. There's people shooting each other for no reason. There's people doing all kinds of horrible acts to one another for no reason. Here with God, incorruption. But when man was far from God, that's when all the bad stuff happened. Think of it this way. Think of a human being Okay, if I take a human being and I put him outside in the sun, okay, or he lives a life and there's the sun and the sunlight is good, vitamin D in the hair and the skin, I don't know what it's good for, calcium, whatever, okay? And then I take that human being and I lock him in a dungeon with no sun. All of a sudden, he's going to become corrupt because he's cut off from the source of, of vitamin D, okay? And you become depressed and you, your, your skin may, whatever may happen because you're not because the sun is punishing you, but you are cut yourself off from the source of life. That's what happened when the world fell into sin. And even says, St. Paul says in Romans 8, we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Simply put, okay, without getting into too much detail, when man sinned, the world was broken. Man was broken and the world was broken. And that's why man needs salvation. So now let me ask you this question. Here I tell you, man... Created an incorruption, love, peace, joy, oneness with God. Man lost that and is over here in a state of corruption, fighting and envy and, and all kinds of lust and bad stuff. How do we save this man? What will save this man? If I give the man a ticket and I say, Here you go, you're two years old, you live in a horrible world, and you're a horrible person. But here's a ticket that after 80 years, after you die, I'm sorry, you'll, you'll live for another 80 years on this, on this place, but here's a ticket that after you die, you get to go to heaven. Does that save man? Does that restore man to where he is original state? A ticket that he's two years old, is going to live for 80 years on this earth. Does that fix the problem? Well, some of you may say, well, it does fix the problem, doesn't it? It fixes the problem if you have this belief in your mind. If you believe that life on earth is meaningless, and if you believe that life on earth is a punishment from God, and if you believe that we were not really made to live on this earth, and basically God just threw us down here, or that you believe that, you know what, you sinned, so go down to to earth and just suffer down there, and if you're nice, I'll let you at a time out, okay, when you die. If you have the right ticket, then I'll let you into heaven. If you view life on earth as a punishment from God, then this makes sense, but I don't view life on earth as a punishment from God. I don't view life on earth as a punishment from God because A then why would God have put us on earth before there was sin? There was no need to punish. That's number one. And number two, what kind of father, my kid comes home and scrapes his elbow, and I say, you shouldn't have been playing in the street. Go to your room while he's bleeding profusely. What kind of father, while he's bleeding profusely, say, go to your room and sit in timeout. A father, heal, solve, and then put him in timeout, right? So God would never just say, okay, you're bad. Go down to earth and just suffer down there, and maybe if you're nice, I give you a ticket. I believe that life on earth is not a punishment. I believe that life on earth has a plan. I believe God has a purpose for every single day that you're here on this earth and for creating you and putting you exactly where you are. And I hope you believe that same thing. And if that's what you believe, then salvation cannot be a ticket. Salvation is healing. Our ancient faith has always viewed salvation not as a ticket for after you die, but as a solution for your sickness while you're alive. When Adam and Eve sinned, the world broke. Man broke. Man had a disease enter into him. And like cancer or like any deadly disease, it slowly, slowly, slowly started to deteriorate mankind. I'm not trying to be a politician or a current events expert or anything like that, but you don't need to look very far in this world. Like I live under a rock, so it, and if it comes to me, I know is. You don't need to look very far to see the world we live in is slowly dying. And it's not actually dying. It's killing itself. The world we live in is killing itself, like we're killing ourselves. The world that we see out there around us. What's the solution? Hey, everybody, here's a ticket to go to heaven when you die. So after you kill each other, you go to heaven after you die? Is that the solution? Tickets, free tickets to heaven? Jesus didn't come to give tickets. Look at the words that Jesus says. Okay, with this in mind, that man was sick and man had this disease. Look at the words that Jesus said. I'll give you a few verses. Luke chapter 5, verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came as a doctor to the sick. Next verse, John chapter 3, verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. If you have the ticket mentality, you view ju- God as a judge. The God came down to judge and say, you good, you bad. Take this ticket, you be good and do it. God didn't come to judge the world. He came to heal the world. He came to save the world that was drowning, that was under attack by a, a disease within. The last verse right here, John 10.10. is that I have come that they may have tickets and an abundance of tickets. That's not what he said. That I have come that they may have life. Because the life that you're living now is not real life. This is life. This is what you were created for. You were created to live a certain way and that got broken. And just because you've never seen real life doesn't mean it doesn't really exist. I just saw someone said that to me, but I don't remember how he said it very eloquently. He said, he said, a goat who's tied up his whole life never knows what it's like to run loose. I don't know why he was talking about goats, but he was, some analogy there, okay? And he's talking about someone who lived, let me make it more applicable. Someone who lived in a room with no sunlight his whole life. You tell him, you're missing the sun. He didn't know what the sun is because he lived this whole way. We live our whole life in corruption. We live our whole life in in this state of sickness. And I say, that's not what you're made for. Jesus came to make you whole. Jesus came to heal you. And he came not just to heal the people out there, but to heal your temper. He came to heal that. Your depression, he came to heal that. Your marriage, he came to heal that. He came to heal you and to make you like him. That's the picture of a whole life, is the life that Jesus lived on this earth, and that's what he came for. Here's a great quote from our patron saint here, Saint Athanasius. He said, the human being made rational and in the image of God, in corruption, that human being was now disappearing, and the work made by God was being obliterated. He could have written that sentence yesterday. He could have put that in the Washington Post yesterday, and we would say this is exactly what we see today. The work made by God, the handiwork of God, the image of God was being corrupted. And that's why Jesus came into this world to heal the world, to save the world. Now, if Jesus came into the world to heal the world, salvation is healing. Next question When does salvation happen? When does salvation happen? And when I say this, again, ticket mentality. I prayed this prayer at this time. That's when salvation happened. Well, for us, when does healing happen? Okay. Let's be, you know, logic about this. I have cancer. I get diagnosed today with cancer. Okay. So I go to the doctor and they give me chemo. Am I healed? No. Then I go back next month and get more chemo. And then the next month and the next month and the next month. And then finally, after five years, I receive that final dosage of chemo and I'm healed. When am I healed? When was I saved? When was I healed? The last dosage? Or the first dosage? Or the third dosage? Or the second dosage? If you say that the first dosage, that's when healing happened, what about the rest of them? If you say the last one, that's when healing happened, okay, so you throw away the first one, what good is the last one? What you would say, and I would say, is that healing is not necessarily a moment, but that healing is a process. It's a process of many moments. And it had a super important moment at the beginning where I realized I have cancer. I need to go to the doctor. That's a super important moment. But that moment in and of itself, if, if it doesn't continue, has nothing. I need to go and get the therapy. I need to go and get the therapy. I need to change my diet. And then I need to live this way. I need to exercise this. I need to go. and I need to go. And then there's one day at the very very end where the doctor says this is the last dosage that you need and I celebrate this one day but I'd be foolish to think that that day was not based upon all the other days that preceded it. In the same way, salvation is the same way. The world today, modern world, focuses on that first moment. When you said, I'm sick, and I go to the doctor, I have a sickness, that's when salvation happens. The early church, the guys who wrote the Bible, the disciples of Jesus, they always focused on the process, not just the moment. Uh, St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Why did he say being saved? Wasn't St. Paul already saved? And wasn't the people, St. Paul is talking, maybe you say, okay, he's being humble, he's being nice, but all these other people. The people he's talking to in the beginning of the epistle, he said to the saints in Corinth, he called them saints, and they were believers. How could they be believers and not be saved? How could they be saints and not be saved? Because St. Paul understood that salvation is a process. It's a process in which many medicine take to get you to that final step. When Jesus came to this earth, I told you a minute ago that salvation is to live a healed life. Jesus gave us the formula for healed life. It's live as he lived. And he taught us about that. And Jesus had a high bar. Jesus said, not only love yourself, but love your neighbor. And don't just love your neighbor, but love your enemy. And Jesus said, don't just give to him who asks you, which is hard enough. Give to him who doesn't ask you. And Jesus told us that to commit adultery, that's bad. But to even look and think about adultery, that's pretty much the same. And what Jesus said is that not only you should be good, not only you should be better, but you should be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Why would he say all those things if the goal was just get a ticket and go to heaven? The goal is not just to get a ticket and go to heaven. The goal is to be cured of the sickness, to live, as St. Paul says later on, with Christ in us, okay? That his life would transform our life and the people would look at us and they would see him. They would hear us and they would hear him and our life would be his life. And that stuff doesn't happen overnight. That's why St. Paul also says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. He says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become Disqualified. What St. Paul is saying here very succinctly, what he's saying is I went to the hospital and I got the first dosage, but I know that I need to get back there and get that second dosage or else I'm not going to be healed. I need to get that third dosage. I need to continue to get the dosage so that I don't lose the salvation or the healing that Christ wants to give me. So number one, someone says to you, what is salvation? You say to them, salvation is healing. Salvation is healing. And someone says to you, okay, when does salvation happen? You say, salvation is a process. That's how it happens. It's healing and it's a process. Third question, how? How does the process work? How do we receive salvation? Here's the fun part. Follow me on this one. In order to understand how I receive the healing, I got to go back and see how I lost the healing. Or how I lost health. That's a better way. So in other words, if I go to the doctor and the doctor says, You don't have enough vitamin C in you, okay? I lost vitamin C, so therefore, the healing is take vitamin C, all right? If I lost uh, blood, the healing is take more blood. If I lost iron, the solution is take iron. So what is my sickness from? What did I lose that led to my state? I come with all these symptoms, and the doctor says, because you don't have enough vitamin whatever. So I come in these symptoms to God, say, like I said, I got temper, I got lust, I got uh, bitterness, I got resentment, I don't have love. Where did these sicknesses come? What did I lose? I lost what? I lost fellowship with God, right? I had fellowship with God, I was good. I lost fellowship with God, I was bad. So what I lost is fellowship with God. So therefore, the only solution is communion with Christ. There's the important point here. Follow me on this one. We find salvation. We find healing. Not from praying, not from reading our Bible, not from singing songs together. Those are all very important things. And those are all means to lead us to have fellowship with Christ. But it's the fellowship with Christ that brings us the healing, and everything else is a means towards that. Everything else, I'm preaching to you right now. My words cannot give you healing, but my hopefully my words can help you to find fellowship with Christ. It's that fellowship with Christ, that communion with Christ, that brings us healing. As a branch that is dead, if I bring the branch near the tree, will that branch be healed? If I bring the branch in front of the tree and I wave it all around, the only way that branch will be healed is if I put the branch... Into the tree. And if the branch is not connected to the tree, no matter how much the branch loves the tree, or believes in the tree, or prays to the tree, or has mercy on its fellow other branches, that branch will never be healed unless it is connected to the tree. Agree? That's what we need in life, because that's what we lost. Now, how do we gain communion with Christ? I'll tell you a silly example. Okay? And forgive me. It's a silly example. I know it's silly, but I'm a silly guy. Okay? So I just... I I always feel like sometimes I say dumb examples, but if it makes the point, it makes the point. And the good thing about this one is an example not of me, but of my wife. And she's out of town this weekend, so I can... (laughs) She knows. This is my way to try to convince her never to go out of town. She knows when she goes out of town, I uh, take liberty, I say whatever I want, and I just say I'm sorry after you tell her what I said. This past week, this past week, Marianne, was sick, right? And Marianne actually, she's been sick. I don't know if she's sick or allergies, whatever. She's been sneezing for about a year now. <laughs> sneezing, and she's got like the sniffles and like a stuffy nose, and it's it's they they it's it's been like a year, and we don't know what it is, but she take whatever, okay? She's been sneezing for about a year, and sometimes it gets worse and sometimes it gets better. I am what's known as a germaphobe. Marianne is very loving, and two become one, and everyone should share everything together. i'm not I'm not necessarily on the sharing of the germs. So when it's me, okay, and there's germs, I st- I stay away a little bit, okay? in a nice way, but so she she got a little extra sick last week, and she was going through a rough time. And I remember she was really sick on Friday and Saturday in particular. okay, That's why she didn't leave the house Friday and Saturday. So Friday and Saturday, Because I got church on Sunday, so I have an excuse of, I can't get sick, Marianne, so. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And good night, good night, like, okay, like, you know what I mean? Like, we go to the ends of the bed on that night, okay? Because it's, I can't get sick for Sunday, and I have that. Problem is, on Sunday night, I'll run out of excuses, okay? (laughs) Because I'm off Monday, so I have no more excuses. So Sunday night came around, okay, and you know what I'm saying, and I miss my wife, and she missed me, so I was nice to her, and I had mercy on her, so I gave her a kiss, Good night, okay, before we sleep every night. Okay, I know lots of husbands and wives don't sleep at the same time. This is me and Marianne. For 15 years, we go to bed at the same time, okay? And it's good night, I love you, and a kiss. Just a kiss, nothing more. Don't think, get your minds under there. I gave her a kiss Sunday night. Monday morning, what do you know happened? Monday morning, I woke up, my nose felt about this big. I couldn't breathe out my nose. I started sneezing. And I'm telling you, I sneezed more on Monday, Tuesday, than I sneezed in the past year of my life. And it couldn't stop the thing, and it's running out of, it. and it's just the worst feeling in the whole wide world. You know the worst part of it? Not that I got sick. She got better. (laughs) Almost instantly, I'm telling you, she'd been sick for a year. And on Monday morning. I didn't hear her sneeze once. I didn't hear her cough once. I didn't even hear her, not even like that, all day on Monday. So what I told her is that I became like Christ for her. I took her sickness so that she could have health, okay? Now follow me. This is a really dumb example. I know it's a really dumb example, but this is my life. I live a dumb life, so just forgive me. Even though I know this is not actually what happened, I do believe God did this just so I could tell this story right now, okay? What happened here? Marianne was sick and I was healthy. And then on Monday, Marianne was healthy and I was sick. What happened in between there? What led to healthy person becoming sick and sick person becoming healthy? Kiss. One kiss. And again, I know I'm not saying that I'm not saying that I absorbed her sickness and took it from her, but just follow me on the example, because the example is, is, is more important than, than, the, than the reality. What took place was a transaction where I threw a kiss, we had kiss, and that kiss transferred what she had inside her to me and what I had inside me to her. I gave her health, she took my sick, or she gave me sick, I took her health. Don't tell her I said this story, by the way. <laughs> Through the kiss, transfer health to sickness. Could she have been healed? Even though, again, I know that my kiss didn't... Well, you never know. Okay. (laughs) Could she have been healed? Follow me on the example. By watching a healed person without have healed her. If she had watched me walk around and say, there's a healthy person, and I watch him walk around without have healed her. If she would have Prayed to the healthy person, would that have healed her? Nothing would have healed her, removed her sickness, unless she had interacted with that person. Because the disease had to go from one person to the other. There had to be an interaction and exchange to take place. And like I said, for us, it took place through a kiss. Follow me on this one. How is man healed of his sickness? To see a healthy person will not heal him. To believe in a healthy person will not heal him. To pray to a healthy person will not heal him. But he must kiss a healthy person. And When I say kiss, you know what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say kiss, kiss. He must have a personal, direct contact with a healthy person. And through that contact, that healthy person can take the sickness and give health. He needs an injection of health. Not to read a story. A sick person to read about a healthy person isn't going to make him healthy. A sick person to watch a movie about a healthy person isn't going to make him healthy. A sick person needs to touch a healthy person in an intimate and personal way. God is health. I am sick. How in the world is me down here sick going to jump up to kiss God? I jump up to kiss God. How am I going to jump up to kiss God? Well, they got some good news for us is that we didn't need to jump to kiss God because God came down to kiss us. And he came down in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. John, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself, broke down the separation through Jesus Christ. That is, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. It's very simple. You don't overthink this one. That in Christ, you have a man, God, You have a God-man, a man-God. You have a man and a God, and Jesus Christ is the union of both of them. And Jesus had one hand on heaven and one hand on earth. And he was always connected to his Father, and he was always connected to us here as man. So in here, in Christ, there is the union that was the health. That's what we said, health was the union, and the separation was the sickness. So Christ himself was the one who showed us health. So when I stand outside Christ, I cannot be saved and I cannot be healed. But I can say, I love you, Jesus. He says, okay, that's great. But you got to come inside. And I say, I believe in you, Jesus. He says, okay, that's great. But you got to come inside. The only way to find health is to enter into this exchange and to be one with Christ and said another way, to be kissed by Christ. You know, in the song, uh, that Christmas song, Mary, did you know? Okay, there's a line, and it's a beautiful line. I talk about Virgin Mary. And Did you know that when you kiss your little child, you kissed the face of God? Okay, that's what the line says. Well, did you know, you and me, that when we find communion with Christ, we find communion with God. We find the state of incorruption that we were created for, and we find healing for all that ails this world right now. said another way what we say in the hymns of the church? We say that he took what is ours so that we could take what is his. This is an important concept. Nothing will bring you healing in life outside of communion with Christ. Nothing. You can believe all you want, pray all you want, but if there's no communion with Christ, if there is no life Like, again, that branch that is not connected to that tree, no matter how much it wants it, it can't find it outside. That's why one of the ironic things, one of the ironic things is many people outside the Orthodox Church, many people outside the Orthodox Church, think that we say salvation is works-based. That's, a many people, that's my favorite part, by the way, about this series. Is There's so much misunderstanding that people who are outside the Orthodox Church think we believe something that we don't believe, and we here in the Orthodox Church believe people outside believe something they don't believe. That's why I'm all about discussion, not about statements or policies. We're not about any of that stuff. I'm about discussion. Many people accuse us of a, of a works-based salvation. To be honest, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I would argue the exact opposite. And many people are outside are saying, salvation happens when you have to say this, or you have to do this, or you have to believe this. You have to do this to receive salvation. We don't say any of that stuff. We, salva- we say salvation is healing. It's Christ. And all we do is we run and hug him and kiss him and become one with him. And that's our salvation for us. It's nothing we do. It's nothing we earn. I'd say the fact opposite, that our salvation is the mo- least works-based because it's all Christ-based more than anything else. Now the million dollar question, okay, and this is the last question I'm gonna ask, is where do we kiss Christ? Okay, Where do we kiss Christ? We said salvation is healing, and that healing is a process, and the only way that process happens is we need to have communion with Christ. Where do we have communion with Christ? Well, the answer to that, I unite with Christ today. And you can write I kiss Christ if you want, but you understand what it means. Don't, don't, don't say it in a funny way. I unite with Christ today, In the mysteries of the church. Mysteries is another word for sacraments, but mysteries is a better word. The central act of worship in the Orthodox Church is not prayer. It is not singing. It is not preaching. The central act of worship in the church is the mysteries of the church by which we interact with God in a personal one-on-one way, said another way, and again, this can be totally misinterpreted. You can take what I'm saying and, and... get all kinds of lost with this stuff. Said another way, it's where we kiss the face of God. That's what every sacrament is. I spoke in the first week, for those who are here, about how the church is theanthropic. Okay, and what that means is the church is divine in human form. So what the church is here today on this earth is something God in a human form. God in human form. And because it is God in human form, that's why Jesus said this to the church. Matthew 16, 19. He says, to you, I will give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. To the church. Okay, in the verse before that, he said, you are Peter upon this rock. I'll build my church and I'll give you, speaking to the church, the keys to the kingdom. What's the keys to the kingdom? What's the keys to the kingdom? What did God, the Father, give to the church that the church has the keys to the kingdom. Church has Christ. Church is Christ. It's the body of Christ. Christ is the key to the kingdom. And what we have inside the mysteries of the church, the sacraments of the church, are a way, a tangible, real way, to unite with Christ. And we unite with Christ in these sacraments in a real, tangible way that may not be able to be seen, but it is real. And when we do that, we receive healing from God the Father. So someone says to you, Are you saved? You answer by saying the the next three sentences. You say, number one, I was saved for sure. Absolutely, I was saved. And you say, I was saved. I received that first injection. I received that first dosage. I was saved when I was baptized, when I was buried with Christ, and I rose to new life that I came to the church, even though I don't remember because I was just a little guy or I was a big guy or I don't know what a guy was. Absolutely, I was saved because I came and I said that salvation is healing and the only way to heal this, I will die with Christ in his tomb and I will rise up to new life. And then after that happened, then the church anointed me with oil and that oil, even though I may not see it, it just looks like regular oil, in that oil, I received the Holy Spirit, that I was sealed with the Holy Spirit and I received power from above that even though the world is still corrupt, that I received a power within me that I don't need to live corrupt, even though the world is corrupt. I have power to live as Jesus lived inside this world. And Someone says to you, hey, wait a minute. So you're saying baptism saved you? The oil saved you? I'm not saying that the, the taking a bath in the water saved me. I'm not saying that receiving oil on my forehead saved me. What I'm saying is that baptism is a mystery which brings me into communion with the Almighty God. And through that mystery, I find salvation. I find healing. I'm not saying the water healed me, but I'm saying through the water, I received that which heals me, a new life in Christ. Through the oil, I receive that which saves me, which is the Holy Spirit and His power working in my life today. Don't let yourself be tripped up by this. Yes, I was saved on the day of my baptism and my chrismation. Absolutely. But I hadn't stopped there. Because I didn't just come and take one dosage and say, woohoo, I'm done right now. I'm not not dumb enough to think just because I received the first dosage of medicine that I'm good for the rest of my life. I am being saved. And I'm being saved through the mysteries or the sacraments of regular repentance and communion. Repentance and communion. Repentance and communion. Repentance and communion. Repentance and communion are not requirements for us. They are medicine for us. Because when we're in this world, I said we unite with Christ, we live that new life and then we make a mistake. So what happens when you make a mistake? You go back and you say I'm sorry, and you go back and you confess. Does confession forgive your sins? Again, don't get into the semantics. I'm not saying that anyone who says these words, I'm not saying it like that, but I'm saying through confession, I have communion with Christ on his cross, and I receive his blood to wash over my sins, and I receive the atonement, the propitiation for my sins. I'm not saying that the confession saved me, but I'm saying the confession brings me the salvation. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Let me tell you another way. What I'm saying is baptism was the first kiss. And you know that first kiss is the most special. That first kiss, this is what Hollywood is all about, that first kiss okay, across the room and whatever it may be in the first kiss. That's what baptism was. But what kind of marriage? only has one kiss. There's multiple kisses. And after that first kiss, there's another kiss, another kiss. And then you know what happens? And again, I know this analogy is going to take me into a bad direction, but let's see how far I can get with it, okay? After that, after that, okay, you may make a mistake. Husband and wife fight. And then after they fight, what do they do? They come and say sorry. And I say, sorry. And how is the fight solved? With a makeup kiss. And makeup kiss its a good kiss. And that's what confession is. It's a, everything's okay. And then makeup kiss. Okay, I'll probably stop the analogy right about now. Okay. Makeup kiss is good. But then the whole point of the makeup is now to have communion together. So we receive confession and we receive that medicine, that kiss from God, and then he invites us to come and really enjoy, and really spend time with him, and and to have more kissing. (laughs) And I will continue to be saved. I was saved. I was being saved. And I will be saved. And that I will be saved will be at the end when the second coming happens, the judgment day you can let your imagination run where the kissing leads to at that point in time. Because on here, on this earth, there's kissing. On here, on this earth, there is intimacy. But there will be fullness of intimacy. I'm not saying any more than that, okay? Are you saved? Absolutely. I was saved. I'm being saved. And I will be saved. I'm saved. I understand salvation, what it means. It means healing. It means I was created in a certain state, image and likeness of God. That image and likeness got broken. Salvation equals to return back to this. And that means my entire life on this earth, I'm working on this salvation because until I am perfect in Christ, then I'm still working on my salvation. Where does it happen? I'm sorry, when? It's a process, as I just said. Where and how does it happen? It happens only by communion with Christ. How do we have communion with Christ? We do that in the mysteries of the church. Mysteries of the church, the sacraments of the church, may not be visible but that does not mean that they are not real. We agreed this before that just because something is not visible doesn't mean it is not real. Your brain is in your head. It is not visible to my eye right now but that doesn't mean it's not real. If I had the right tool in my hand, okay, if I took that little tool and stuck it in your ear and I looked straight inside, I could see your brain. Even though that's not what it does. But If I had the right tool, um, CAT scan, MRI, Whatever kind of machine, if I had the right tool in my hand, I could see your brain. And if we had the right tool, the right spiritual eyes, then we could also see what's happening in baptism and chrismation and Eucharist and confession. So Just because we don't see it doesn't mean that it is not real. Finish you off here with a great quote. It's kind of long, but it's, it's, it's a beautiful quote. It's from, it's from Metropolitan Callistos Where He's speaking only about the Eucharist, but this can be applied to all of the sacraments in the church. He says the Eucharist is not a bare commemoration or an imaginary representation of Christ's sacrifice, but the true sacrifice itself. Yet on the other hand, it is not a new sacrifice nor a repetition of the sacrifice on Calvary, since the Lamb was sacrificed one only for all time. The events of Christ's sacrifice, the Incarnation, the Last Supper, the Crucifixion, the Resurrection, the Ascension, are not repeated in the Eucharist, but they are made present. Okay? They are made present. Every time we do the Eucharist, doesn't mean that Christ is dying again. But what it means is that his death, his resurrection, is made present. He goes on. During the liturgy, through its divine power, we are projected to the point where eternity cuts across time. And at this point, we become true contemporaries with the events we commemorate. All the holy suppers of the church are nothing else than one eternal and unique supper that of Christ in the upper room. The same divine act both takes place at a specific moment in history and is offered always in the sacrifice. You can play around with that one and try to understand what that means. What that means for us is that the sacraments, all the sacraments for us, are not historical events. That through the sacraments, we participate in a real way in the life of Christ in his birth, in his crucifixion, in his burial, in his death, in his resurrection, his ascension into the heavens. We participate in Christ, and the only way for man to be healed is to participate in the man who was healed himself, which is Christ. Believing in Christ is great. Singing about Christ is great. Learning about him is great. But you will not find healing, which is salvation, until you learn to participate in him in a real way. That's our series. As we wrap up this series, I hope that you enjoyed the series, of course, as always. But I hope even more than that, that if there's one thing that you take away from this series, I hope that there's one thing that you take away, is that life that we see here on this earth, life that you see all around you right now, on the news and just everywhere, that's not what it's supposed to be. That's not how we were made. We were made for much more. We were made to live much higher than this. We're made live in the image and likeness of God. The life that you see out today is a distorted view of what God created. But it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be that here in the church, I invite everyone to join us. I invite you to join us as we discover, as we journey to discover the life that God intended for us to live. We will make mistakes along the way and we will never be perfect and we will, we will, of course, all those things. But the journey of the Orthodox Church, okay, what we have here in this ancient faith is a journey to discover the life that God intended us to live, not the distorted, corrupt life that we see out there today, not the watered down version of our ancient faith that we see today, where anything that is unexplainable is thrown away because it doesn't make sense to our, our modern world minds and our modern world context. I invite you to join us as we journey in the modern world in an ancient faith, okay? And that's what the Orthodox Church is, and that's what this church is all about. And I hope, okay, that you uh, saw that, and we invite you to join us and be part of our church and get to know more about us because this is just the beginning. We only scratched the surface. All we talked about here in this series was what has been given to us, and now the rest, okay? We're going to talk about what we're going to do with it. That's life in the church. And again, I invite everyone to join us in that. Okay, Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Heavenly Father, from the depth of our heart. Thank you, Lord, that you you saw us down here in this miserable state, and you see us in this world today, and struggling, and suffering, and you don't just leave us alone, but you came to heal us, and to lift us up, to your true design for us. Lord, you made us as the crown of creation. You made us as your sons and daughters, in your image and likeness, Lord, and, and that's been corrupted today. We pray, Lord, that you would help us through the church and through the sacraments that you've given us to take advantage of the medicine that you have poured into us, that you've given to us to find healing, healing that we so desperately need for our souls, our bodies, our spirits, and for our world. We pray, Lord, for the entire world and all those who are sick in any way, Lord. Pray that you would bestow your healing touch on us all and help us all to find that healing which you came to give to us. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.